glory, unity, peace. The thing that uh, we're going to be going into as we go into the book of, of Acts, again, chapter uh, 18, where we're going to start today. Uh, this, these themes that, that the glory, the unity, the peace, talks about God introducing a gracious, redemptive work among humanity. We are to be informed that Jesus Christ is not out to change the world. Jesus is here to introduce a redeemed humanity, the kingdom of God. And as we get into Paul, uh, the teaching of Paul, we want to and look at what Paul does. I invite you again to be a disciple of Christ, to learn from Paul, because these lessons will help you understand that it's not about change the world or the purpose of going out and improving or healing the world. It's about learning how to live in the grace of Christ, that you have a relationship with him to such a degree that you are personally transformed. Well, this is why I titled the, this message today, The Kingdom in Corinth. And as you go into this story uh, this morning, we begin with Acts 18, we want to understand the background, why, why it was so difficult for Paul in this letter the longest letter in the New Testament. Uh, and we're going to get an insight to see what it was like for the Holy Spirit to do a work in a group of people who were so distant from the kingdom and the growth that they had and as, a, uh, as a pagan culture into a kingdom culture is the same process that you and I will go through especially here in America. There are so many similarities and lots of lessons that you can take personally from this, this uh, series. But I want you to understand it's about the kingdom of God, not only in Corinth, but here in Chesterland. So, so let me begin by reading Acts 18. Paul leaving Athens. Again, we're in the Greek society. And we'll... We'll have an overlap, but I want to go back because there's a couple things I want you to enjoy, uh, struggle with, think about. But it's right here. Let me begin. Acts 8, 18. And after these things, Paul, he left Athens, and he went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were both tent makers. And Paul was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and they blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, 
whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord and with all of his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they had heard, they were believing and they were being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. So Paul settled there for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Interesting. What I want to do as we get into this, I want to briefly go through some preliminary concepts that you understand the challenge that Paul has. But I want to take us into what we're doing to understand what it's like to cross cultures and to go into a different person's world view to understand how to communicate, how to connect, and then to think about how the Spirit of God is going to use each one of us to help people grow and move towards the gospel, which is called conversion. And we'll look at that from what Paul did in the Corinthians, but we're also going to look at the problem that they had. And it's a major problem. It's a problem that we have, the same problem actually, but then they're looking at several different areas as we go through the book. And so I want to give you an overview <clears throat> of this book so that you'll get interested and as you personally study it and read it, you'll go, huh, this is really pertinent to, to me right now. So in Acts 18, Paul goes to Athens and he doesn't present Jesus as another God figure because they had 30,000 gods and goddesses, 26 temples in the, in the city of Corinth alone. But when he goes into, when he goes into their, this culture, he is not presenting Jesus as another option, as an alternative, as a better therapy, or as a new and improved religion. Uh, he is doing something radically different because it was okay to believe in Jesus and believe in the other gods and add him to the list. But what Paul was doing was he was saying, nope, I'm going to turn the whole thing upside down that you can't worship Jesus and somebody else. You can't have multiple gods. And as Paul gets into that, he's bringing in an idea that there is only one living God who is sovereign, and everything else that you're worshiping is a delusion. Now think about this challenge. It's the same challenge we have. How do you persuade people but what they believe is not true? You see that everywhere today. But second, he doesn't present Jesus as a philosophical or even as a theological a doctrine or argument that this is a worldview. It's not an intellectual, propositional a teaching that you need to agree with or understand or reason through. He is not interested in intellectual um, debate and getting people to buy into your particular persuasion. So it's not about philosophy. It's not about argument. He's not there to engage in dialogue and cultural ethics or moral questions of the day. Paul is not going to be content to argue just Christian doctrine in the marketplace. Paul has an agenda. And that agenda is the agenda of the Holy Spirit 
that God says, I have many people in this place. God is, uh, through Paul, God is not out to change Corinth. He is out to rescue his people in Corinth and transform them into the kingdom of God. Therefore, he, uh, as he goes into uh, this culture, he's going to help them understand <clears throat> that he's not there to help them find a new spirituality. He's not there to help them find a private faith that they're going to feel better and have a happy life. He is out to introduce a whole new system of thinking that radically transforms individual thinking, uh, personal gain into a collective kingdom community where they have an understanding of the revelation of Christ. They have an understanding of how God says about people. And he's going to have an understanding of that the church alone is the depository of the revealed word of God. And that as we, as redeemed humanity, two groups made into one, we have a glory that comes from above. We have a unity displayed among our community. But we have a peace because of the gospel of Christ. And that peace is going to touch right down in the very heart of relationships. And therefore, you're going to find this book particularly challenged because as Paul was trying to make a connection to bridge into the culture, he would use whatever tools, uh, keys in the culture that they could use to connect. But Paul was trying to make a bridge not on a philosophical or sociologically debating the issues. He was trying to do it life on life one-on-one. On one. I mentioned last week that Tom and Betty Brewster, the linguist from uh, Fuller, California, from Fuller Seminary, was the one that introduced me to that idea that when you go into a different culture, you go in either as a superior person, as a missionary. Often the history says we would go in as, a, as one who is a businessman to sell things, or we would go in as a teacher to teach things, or we would go in as a judge to evaluate things in third world cultures. We are bringing something to you, and our position is superior. And that puts the other person, the, nat the native, the national, the, the, those who are outside of Christian, they put them in an inferior position. And the inferior position means that they have to be the consumer. I want to buy what you've got. Your medicine is better. Your technology is better. Your automotive, your whatever is better. We'll buy because you're better. And therefore, we need what you have. And it has this dependency, but there's a distance. And same for education. It's like our, our universities are better. So send your internationals over here. We'll, they'll get a better education. Which means that we know we're smarter and you don't know. You're not as smart. That is a felt reality when you have a second-class standing. It's the same thing when people start to judge. You guys are really kind of not here. And so when people accuse you and people feel bad because they don't have what you have or are like what you are like and don't relate and identify. Well, the same thing for people in the church. There are people primarily who come to church for one reason, mainly, is they identify with the people there. 
They are connected. They are friends. They find themselves identifying with, and I call them, sometimes call them church friendly. They're not anti-God. They're not anti-prayer. But they're kind of a, a nice group. And so you can have people in religious societies that are cliques, social groups, that really miss what Paul is trying to say here. But Tom and Betty taught me that you either walk in the world looking at people as uh, museum pieces. You're, you're weird. You do things different. You're not like... Or, or machines, that they're there to serve you. So you have hamburger dispensers or money changers. or you have They serve a function. But the idea that you have life on life, friend to friend, story to story, that you have been touched by God, I have been touched by God, we have been called by God, and we are brother and sisters. Amazing work that the Spirit of God is trying to do. But if you have these differences... Of, of the social class, what Tom and Betty said, we need to reverse those things and let people tell us, teach us, sell to us. We will buy what they're th- we're, we're going to listen and we're going to bring them in, but we're going to do it so that they can judge us to see if we are worthy or acceptable. But often you have these two cultures colliding. And therefore, especially in America, we have an argument culture. And crossing cultures, often for us, has to go through our mindset. And so we argue through. Here's the word argue. Listen to that that root word again, which I know some of you love to hear. It's to maintain an opinion or view to Reproach, accuse, and blame. I don't know what the word hairy means. That's a name for me. But it means ultimately to make clear, make known, prove, declare, to demonstrate, to shine. Now that's not what you think about when you think about argue. You tend to think of sparks, fire, conflict. And therefore, this arguing idea to get people persuaded is the opposite with the word agree. And the fact that that we are to be called into unity is to be an agreement. The word, interestingly, has tied to the roots to be satisfied. Okay, I'm convinced. I want that. I agree with you. I'm in line with you. But that's not the way the Greeks would think about it. They would think about debating. And debate has to do with the beat, the hit, the percussion, the discussion. It means you dispute and you argue and you really try to win the argument. Now, this is a book I read a long time ago, and I love Deborah Tannen's work because she says, and it is true, that our culture really is an argument culture. We think that we approach the world and the people in it in an adversarial frame of mind. It rests on the assumption that opposition is the best way to get anything done. Now you're going to pick up this thinking in Athens and in Corinth. Conflict and opposition are as necessary as cooperation and agreement. But 
the scale is off balance. And with conflict and opposition, given too much weight. The idea that if the Corinthians and the arguers and the debaters of the age would have had the Old Testament like the Jews would have. They would understand how you enter into the debate, but they would understand what Solomon would say, fools find no pleasure in understanding, but delight in airing their own opinions. There's no interest in understanding. There's an interest in debate. Why? Because I'm going to, have, I'm going to beat you. I'm going to, I'm going to win the argument. And you can win the argument and lose the personal friendship. The Jews would understand that. Fools find no pleasure in understanding, but delight in their, their own opinions. And then you have this opposite thing that the, the Proverbs tells you, that it's better to live in the corner of a roof than to share a house with a quarrelsome or contentious woman. You've heard of that. It's the same thing for a man. It's better to live in a corner than to live with a dominating, arrogant, arguing, not open to listen, husband. I had to get that in for balance. I'm into balance today. But when Paul goes into this arguing society, this contentious society, I want you to get the feel that what Paul is saying is this, that in the gospel, what you have, Christian, is you have a sufficient base in the gospel that is about the supremacy. It's about the supremacy of the work of the Holy Spirit. Because when the Holy Spirit takes you out of this debate culture, out of this contentious culture, and introduces to you peace, unity, glory, grace, you become a transformed community. And so Paul was saying this, you have as Christians... You have a sufficient base in seeing the gospel for God's people, for aligning every part of your life and culture with kingdom meaning and kingdom values under the lordship of Jesus Christ. This is quite a sell for Paul. In a country that's going to debate Paul and argue, you saw where the Jews said, no, 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 no. Paul, you're wrong. Out with you, Paul. And so Paul starts always in tension, as we always do. In Acts 18, you find the main challenges that as Paul leaves Athens and goes into Corinth, he finds the same Greek culture in Corinth. Now I want to give you a little bit about Corinth so that you can understand when you read this passage. Because read it with this sense, because it is this powerful. The background of a Greek worldview was the default mindset of the baby Christians. So just because you become a Christian doesn't mean, ding, you think like the king. It means there's a whole lot of baggage that you're bringing in from your worldview that really is in tension and conflict with what the Lord wants to do. Second, understanding that the cultural and the fleshly influences of your past your wounds, your family of origin, your, your travels and, and your relationships all are going to influence what you think about in terms of faith, learning wisdom, and learning how to repair 
forgive and love people. To understand why people do what they do is the whole point of Wednesday night. But to communicate the gospel so that people understand more. But the third part is, is that people have an underdeveloped, the Corinthians have an underdeveloped view of God's purposes in the gospel and an underdeveloped view of how the Holy Spirit is at work inside us collectively. Not just privately, collectively. And Corinth was definitely a silo, a divided city-state where people, groups, and nations, and tribes were always fighting. Not so in the kingdom of God. Because if you have the Holy Spirit, something should shift in how you listen to people, how you understand people, how you want to come alongside people. The Corinthians didn't have that. The Corinthians didn't have that because they have a pagan background, not like the Jews who have 2,000 years of Ten Commandments and having a morality established in their society, not this group. And so in Corinth, you have a group that is very, very far from the kingdom of God, but they're moving, but they're bringing a whole lot of undeveloped thinking. Four, to understand that Jesus is not just a, a, a nice therapist, a nice teaching, moral teacher. Jesus is not out to change the world. He's out to be the king of your heart. And therefore, as king, he is interested in a personal relationship, not philosophy. He wants to walk with you in such a way that you know the king. Lastly, as the Corinthians are trying to figure out how this church works, they're going to discover resources in the church alone. And in that church, they would understand that the gospel is true because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because Christ is alive and living, that resurrection hope will begin to provide answers for all the particular issues that they go through. And they were going through a lot of them. Uh, but that resurrection would also not only give meaning to this life here on earth, but when it comes to the point of death, which the Greeks couldn't handle. So here you are, in Greek, in this city, that in five centuries before, Athens was a glorious city. Uh, Athens was losing their glory. Sparta, you know, was a very strong city. And uh, Corinth was right in the middle of these two. Corinth then becomes a very powerful centerpiece in the whole history of Greece because in Corinth they were located on this isthmus. And if you notice that little, that little boat, there's a little triangle there, uh, Julius Caesar and Augustus tried to cut a path right across the land because it was dangerous to go around the southern part. And so in Corinth, they tried to cut a canal. Nero also tried to uh, cut into that canal, and that canal would cut right through that so the boats would move from the Aegean Sea into the, the Corinthian, the Mediterranean. There's lots of work to be done. This is an economic powerhouse, much like New York or Paris or Los Angeles, but this was a particular powerful 
economic base because they brought in the Roman freemen. They brought in 6,000 Jewish slaves, and they started working in Corinth. And they started to cut that. It wasn't finished until about 100 years ago in the 19th century when they finally, after the death of Nero, they stopped. But they finished it, and now they can go all the way through. This idea that there's a, a, an economic base in Corinth that wasn't in Athens and it wasn't in Sparta. Let me explain. In Corinth, they were famous for selling this black pottery. It got very famous all the way through the country. But they were also famous for their marble. The Corinthian marble was worldwide famous. Even Solomon's temple had Corinthian marble in the temple. They were also famous, not as famous as the Olympic Games, but they were the number two in the Isthmus Games as they would introduce those, again, the Olympic athletes. There were four of them in, in Greece. But the idea that, that Corinth became quickly popular, quickly powerful, you know that they exported a lot of their ideas, but one of the things in particular that they are known for is the helmet, the Corinthian helmet. And this is the helmet that you see that all the universities try to copy. There they are. And you'll see, I was at Michigan State, and so there's the, old, it, the, the Spartan helmet. I, I'm from Newcastle. It was the Newcastle Trojans. It was the same thing. But you had this idea of a helmet that came from the, 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 the craftsmen from Corinth. They have adapted it, of course. It wasn't just a metal bowl or, or some other things. But the Romans, the Romans uh, adapted something. They opened it up. But that protection, they were famous. And everybody wanted a padded Corinthian helmet because it was the best. In this context, Paul takes this image and he says to them, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Church, He's addressing the Corinthians who understood about protecting your brain. But he said, pray in the Spirit. The helmet is about your thinking. Your helmet is about the spiritual thinking. The helmet is about the spiritual thinking and the mind of Christ to keep praying for the Lord's people as a weapon. Well, here's my, here's my point. In Greece... They had an understanding about how to live life without Paul. And they were successful. In, in Greece, you have Socrates, who said the unexamined life is not worth living. Again, Athens was the intellectual, the philosophy, the educated, the elite. But they said that even if you don't, if you don't think, if you're not reflective, if you're not contemplating life, then you're missing something. You may be successful over here, but you may not be understanding your motivation or the benefits. Well, that was Athens. Athens was different. But Paul would say the same thing as he would go into 2 Timothy. He said, you have learned these things from your childhood. You have learned these things, now become convinced of. There are many people who are informed, but they weren't convinced of things. And Socrates said, you need to think about that. And so there was a challenge and an invitation to think in Athens. 
And so Athens would say that man, because you're thinking in a group, you are a political animal. And your answers and your best answers of your thinking are going to come into conflict with a different kind of thinking. And therefore, man is a political animal. But he's also a relational creature, said Moses. But he's not just a relational creature. He's an image bearer of the God who made his mind to think like the God who made him. And therefore, it was more than just politics. Man was a spiritual being. But if you get into that school of Athens, you've got Apollo on one side and Athena on the other side, and people were debating. It's an unbelievable place. Not so in Corinth. Not so in Sparta. It wasn't the intellectual side. It was the military, political side that the Romans and the Spartans knew that might makes right. And therefore, it wasn't what you knew. It was how strong you were. Intellectual, power, not so in Corinth. For Corinth, it was a money. It was economic. It was success. And if you were successful in, in Corinth, then you knew that you would have a, a power that wasn't based on military, wasn't based on intellectual, it was based on success. And therefore, there was a lot of rich people in Corinth as you see, as you see in the in the text, you'll meet these people as you go along. Corinth, the Corinth, the Corinthian church had a lot of people who were rich, very very wealthy, slave owners. Even the poor people had slaves. But it was definitely a stacked society. But in that society, the question came up: Is well, who's going to make the best decisions? That's why when Francis Schaeffer, when he wrote his book, he was saying the problem with the society then is that they were only looking for answers on a human level. You reasoned through, you thought through, you trusted the elite people. But if you didn't have the elite people to go to, and they would eventually fail because their base in reasoning was limited, then people would become mystical or spiritual, and they would turn to the gods. And the gods were just nothing more than projections of human people enlarged or exaggerated. But the idea that people would have answers, well, if they didn't have answers, the gods would have answers, but if the gods were mute, they wouldn't get anything from God. They're gods. And therefore, they were simply men made larger than life. And when Paul goes into Corinth, he says the same thing that Moses would say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. That's the Shema, the famous Shema. There is only one God. And now that might be familiar to us, but put yourself back in Corinth. There are 30,000 gods. I can pick and choose which one I want. No, says Paul, you don't understand this God, the monotheism that we hold to, is different than the idols that you're worshiping. And so he said to the Corinthians about eating food, sacrifice in chapter 8, the foods that they're sacrificing to please the gods, Paul says, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world. The gods that you worship are worthless. 
Here's your debate. What do you mean? I have a higher power. I have my right to my own opinion. Yes, you do. But your opinion is your opinion. That's all it is. It's limited. You don't understand. We have a God who is unlimited. And Paul would go on to say to the Galatians, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. Paul was saying, you don't know anything. And God knows everything. But you don't know this God, and therefore you worship this unknown God. And I'm here to tell you. Now, the military is not going to provide the base. The intellectuals are not going to provide the base. The economics are not going to provide the base to the answers that people struggle with. And here's the question I give to you that Paul is going to answer. Why Jesus? Why should I believe the God of the Bible is a sufficient base for me to abandon my money-making schemes? I'm pretty happy with this. I don't need any more God stuff. I got enough reasoning and books to read and people to talk to that I'm, I'm kind of, I enjoy the search and learning. But why should I abandon this intellectual pursuit why should I abandon this powerful position I've got of a might in politics that I can win? I can win. Why should I do that? Christian, you've got the same question. Why should we abandon our human reasoning for the reasoning of Christ? Do you have an answer for that? Could you explain that to somebody who doesn't believe what you believe? Why should they believe what you believe? Now you're in not into a debate, but you're into a discussion. Can you answer that? Why is the God of the Bible enough that you want to give your time Sunday morning to come and worship him? Why? Can you explain that? Because Paul was reasoning in the scriptures why he did. Can you explain why you do? So let me invite you to this conversation. I'm going to run this real quickly. You want to throw a shoe at me because it's so long. Can you answer that question? Why the God of the Bible is a sufficient base for my life? I'm going to run real quickly through these 12. I'm not going to go expand on them. He is the living God, the everlasting God. He is the Lord of all creation. He is the light of life. He cannot lie. No evil or darkness dwells in his nature. He's holy. His nature at the core is true. It's gracious. It's merciful. He has fulfilled his promises in the Old Testament and the New. He is trustworthy. There is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. He rose from the dead. He restores my soul. He loves me, and he died for me. That's why I choose to follow Christ. And understanding, understanding that, then you understand that the Christians that are brought together aren't in competition 
but they're in collaborative communities to learn and encourage each other. That the basis of our reasoning, the basis of our religion, the basis of our power, the basis of our economic success all comes from surrendering to the Lordship of Christ. In law, in life, in truth, and in death, we find what he has given in this scriptures far superior that's a divine answer than any human reasoning. If you understand this as a Christian, then you understand you have a biblical base by not only which to build your life, but also to explain to the other people who don't know the God that you worship. The living God is revealed in the person of Christ, and Christians can abandon, abandon the limited worldly and religious systems to join the kingdom of God. And by joining Christ and abiding in him, we enjoy what it means to grow in grace and to speak and giving the word to all the nations. Again, for the Corinthians, Paul was introducing not just another alternative, he was introducing the lordship of Christ in the kingdom of God. It's a sufficient base in the gospel because it's a supremacy of the Spirit to make man in the image of God restored. This restoration, you see, everything is sufficient in Christ. And for that reason, Paul's work, working with these pagans to move them into the kingdom, is conflictual. And so what you're going to find is that they did not take up the helmet of the Spirit. And they took up the helmet of the world. And they thought like the world. And they brought that into the church. And you're going to watch the Spirit of God work in this group, moving them from one stage to another stage. That's what he will do in your life if you understand that's how God's Spirit works in the body. This is exciting stuff. So get prepared because you'll find more answers and questions as you go along. Let me close in a word of prayer. There's so much in this passage, Jesus, that when you open your word, it's just like these, there's like diamonds. But they're not just riches that are kind of interesting. They transform us. Father, thank you that you have invited us to think, not according to our culture, not according to our education, but to think from above, to think with the spirits guiding within. Now, Father, I pray that you would take this book and continue to equip us to be those people who understand how to love and reason like Paul cared for those Corinthians, that you would give us the same spirit to care for those around us. God, train our hands for war and teach us how to use that grace to win people to Christ. We give it to you for your glory. In our growth, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.